Let's start. Does anybody have any requests for prayers tonight? I need to put you Okay. All right. I I just paid for I can give them by the way, I, I would really be grateful if all of you did buy one. Um, even if you've got other sources because otherwise we might get stuck with a possible. Anybody like them? Do you have one? That would be paying for all of it. Hmm? What's that? That would be paying for all of it. You want to pay for all of it? Well, that gives you a... Well, I'll just pay, pay for the books for you. Right? For the books? Right. Okay, that's really special. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll square up a little around Yeah, that The one last study guide is five. This is the very last six. The, fifth, the fifth is one we're doing tonight. Oh, it's mark that out. Yeah, mark that out. Can we, can we start? Just, just so you can have a moment's peace and breathe a little bit, take a look at that. And not only that, but if you looked at the if you looked at the font here and looked at the font here, you know that this is much larger. So anyway, so enjoy enjoy the break. Well, I hate to upset you, but, but I am Kenda Faulkner. My father was William Faulkner. The Faulkners, that Faulkner, his ancestors came from Missouri, and there's a Faulkner cemetery there, and that's where my parents my last Faulkner's came to too. He and I are related way back there. Why would that upset me? <laughs> Why would that upset me? Because she'll have lots of questions. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, but I don't ask any questions. <laughs> I, I'm not going to hold you to that. I'm not going to hold you to that. Oh, okay. All right, Suzanne, let me give you for, the two, for two books. Then. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, did you get them? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. huh? No, we don't have okay. any. All right. Is this the poem right here? Yeah, I think that's what he I think that's what he This one, I think that's the one. I was handed off. Can we start? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in Mass, your presence with us always. Um, a special um, thank you for um, these poets who've done so much to help us to clear the blinders from our eyes, open our hearts, um, to learn to see that you are far more present at work in our lives than sometimes we know. Strengthen us in our efforts to continue in that work, genuinely open our eyes, even if it's painful, most especially if it's painful um, and hard. I ask a special blessing on all of us gathered here, um, here at the outset of Lent. Um, the readings the last few days have been 
stern warnings, beckonings to follow your law, to repent. You don't want sacrifices so much as you want contrite hearts. Um, renew in us our hearts, recreate in us. Um, help us to open ourselves to you so that we can learn to see our sins more clearly, particularly those that we don't see very well. Always trusting that your grace um, will wash them away. Um, let this be a, t a time of serious repentance for all of us, um, hoping, counting on, on you, to, that by doing this we will grow closer to you, um, more one with each other. Um, increase our efforts to be more like you um, and to bring you to a world that doesn't know you. Um, sometimes we overlook how important this is with all the homilies and work that we do. In our very families, and maybe most especially there, where we see so much easier to take things for granted, help us to make you present. Um, watch over us during this Lent. Keep us close to you. We are glad to have this time together. And we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Can you pull out Wordsworth? Um, just as a reminder, I think all of you here last week, I handed out that sheet on from Purgatory, from Dante's Divine Comedy, if you remember. Um, just because it's a reminder of some of the sins that, that we're asked to um, repent, to take seriously. <coughs> It, it may be a good reminder here to take a second for this. Those of you who, are, who did Dante remember that Dante started to go up that mountain at the very beginning of the book, remember? It, that, and it, if you remember our discussion on it, it um, you'll remember that that's Dante's, that's an expression of Dante's desire to be with God. It's in the middle of his life he wants to be with God. Some kind of turn has taken place. We don't know what's behind it. We learn later that he's in danger of being damned, probably damned. Um, so that turning to the sun represents a turn in his life that he wants to do something. And he believes that he's without sin in some ways, I mean, for him to make that effort, right? I mean, he wants to go there and he tries to go up on his own. He thinks he can make it, he can't. So one of the truths that we learn from that is that it's only by a grace given to us that we can make that turn. Remember, um, um, Mary went to Lucia and Lucia went to Beatrice and Beatrice went to Virgil. So that what we see in heaven is this action of love. That, what else could it be in heaven? It's an action of love, the, the kinds of loves that Dante's involved with that God can use to work with him because what else does he work with for any of us? The things that we love—it could be, it could be a baseball player, or an engineer, or um, a mother, a nurse, doesn't matter, whatever it is. Remember that he thinks he can get up that mountain on his own, and he can't. He needs help. And Beatrice finally goes to get Virgil, and Virgil comes to get Dante. And the first thing that he has to do is go down. He has, he has to go in. Joseph Conrad would call it in his famous book, Heart of Darkness. He has to go in there to see the things in himself that 
it, it's really clear he's not seen very clearly. That's why he needs Virgil to help him see his sins more clearly because most of us aren't very aware of our sins. Our, our inner life is so obscure. So I handed that out just on, on the, in the hope that you know, if, you, if you would look at it and, and if you go over the scheme, you'll remember, you'll see, not only does he identify the levels of sin, but he identifies the goats and the checks and the contrapassos, the virtues that we need to practice to answer those sins, to put them away, because the whole effort of purgatory is to recover our virtue, to become virtuous again. If you remember, too, those of you who are with me, I mean, some of you may not share this belief, but I really believe, I mean, I believe in purgatory, but more importantly here, I really believe that in our church we've been called to make our life a purgatory, that, that, that we should be practicing virtues, trying to do what we can to be good. Remember, we got that from Plato, too. Remember, mind your own business. <laughs> um, try to be a better person, because you can't be very just if you're not, you know, so. Anyway, I want to say here at the outset, I hope you all have a good Lent, truly a good Lent. I hope this is a good Lent for everybody. Um, our prayers will include this group daily. Um, I would be grateful if you included Suzanne and me in your prayers, um, particularly during Lent. I always look forward to Lent because I, I think of us as all doing this together. That we're all, that's truly, that's, that's my image. I'm not exaggerating, I'm not being sentimental. I have a dear friend in New Hampshire whom I love. He's not doing well right now. But, um, and it's hard for me to picture Lent beginning without the two of us climbing the mountain. So um, that's the way I see our struggles here, that we're, our, our daily efforts to get better, to, to try to work. With, <laughs> with all the heartaches and agony that that leaves us with daily. Um, anyway, that's my hope for, for all of us here. Okay, surprised by joy. Here's what I'd like to do. I'm gonna read the first two poems today. Um, uh, no, two, two of the first three. And then over the next two meetings, I'm gonna read the intimation zone, and you can see how long it is. It's not a short poem. Um, I wasn't gonna do Wordsworth, but I wanna do him um, for one important reason. We're here to see if we can find Christ in our lives, more often where we don't expect to find him, um, where we don't think he's present. That was the whole purpose of this. Um, we read the Blake poems, and you saw how committed Blake was as a prophet, that his poetry was in some ways very prophetic, and Christ was very much behind the poems, even if he didn't talk about them explicitly. With Wordsworth, we're gonna see a drop off radical change. Wordsworth is in some ways maybe the, maybe the greatest, if not certainly one of a small handful of the greatest poets of the 19th century. Most academics love him because if you read his poetry it's so calming. It's almost like listening to a poet sitting in an armchair. I loved Wordsworth for a time, really was taken by him. His, his verse is so quieting. But the more I got to know him, the more unquiet I got about him, and now I don't like him very much at all. Um, because, because there's something to armchair. I mean, there, there are things about the mysteries of our world that, that Wordsworth doesn't know and doesn't touch on. Blake is much closer to them. Blake is much closer to painful things, much closer to a cross. Wordsworth's not. 
academics love him, I think, because he, he, he expresses the kind of life I think they would long of them long to have. Most of them, sorry, most of them would long to have. Um, so I'd like to read a couple, just for you to have an experience of a great poet, truly great poet, but one who represents a turn. And it's good to be aware of it because it's something we're going to experience more and more as we move into the modern world, and you all know that. So, okay. I'm going to read two poems, and then in the next couple of weeks, I'll, I'll break down intimations of because there's a problem at the middle, in, at the heart of intimations ode that I think would be good to see uh, for us together. Um, so, I'm surprised by joy and composed upon Westminster Bridge. Um, when I read West, composed upon Westminster Bridge, remember Blake's London. Remember in the Thames, the, the chartered streets, the chartered, the chartered river, the marriage first, a harlot's cry, remember? Those dark things that London was an image of a law gone bad. Um, set that poem against this one and you'll hear the difference that I'm talking about. You all remember what I'm talking about, yeah. Blake's London, right? Okay. Um, just one note on Surprised by Joy because I don't want to comment on after, I want to just let it settle on you. Um, Surprised by Joy is the name of one of C.S. Lewis's books. And the title for that book came from Wordsworth's poem. And in some sense, the experience that Wordsworth's talking about here goes back to Dante on the Purgatorio. Now, um, for those of you who may not remember, remember that when Dante was about ready to come up to the ledge of the avaricious and then the lustful, who did he meet? Who's Sharpier? Who did he meet? Really obscure figure. Oh. Unfair, unfair question. He met Stasius, the poet, remember, who'd been on purgatory for, I can't remember, 1,600 years. It's not a short time. And um, the two of them, and remember, and remember because I, I remember wanting to focus on that issue, it's three poets, and the whole question of poetry becomes central to what happens at the top of purgatory, because Dante's writing about the kind of poetry that will lead us back to all that happens on the um, earthly paradise, you know, the return of um, Beatrice and the beatific pageant, Christ at the center of it, they're, they're coming back to meet him. Beatrice is the Christ image that will lead him up through the heavens. When Stasius is there, he, I can't remember the question Dante asked, but um, something leads him to talk about his poetry and the poet he most loved. Who was the poet he most loved? Virgil. Dante smiles, if I remember this, and Virgil is smiling and, and Stasius is a little bit perplexed because he doesn't know why the two men are smiling and then he asks, when Virgil tells him, do you remember what, what um, Stasius' response was? He was so overcome with joy, this is crucial to this poem, he was so overcome with joy that he bent down to kiss his feet and embrace him. And he's a shade. Yeah. That's where this line comes from, surprised by joy. Hmm. The, the joy now, th put, this, put this next to Melville and Ahab. Because there's nothing in Ahab's life that encourages him to look at suffering in the context of a possible joy. That's where we are. Surprised by joy is is the title of Lewis's book 
because he's talking about that moment that I'm sure lots of people have had, widows and widowers, when, you're, when you've lost somebody you love and suddenly something happens that transports you for a moment, you can be watching a movie on television. Wordsworth had lost his sister. He's out on a walk and for one moment he is so overcome with, with the joy of the moment that he turns to, to share it because they were so accustomed to taking their walks together and she's not there. So in those moments we forget our loss. The loss for a moment is overcome. Is that clear? I'm sure, like, I mean we know of those moments and I'm sure some people have already experienced them. That, that, that joy is so much a part of our life. Remember that, that um, chapter in Melville's Moby Dick when in the Grand Armada when there was nothing but commotion and disturbance and, and then Ishmael had that long description of the tranquil calm at the center of his heart that no matter what was going on he knew that that was there. Contrast that with Ahab. The, the, the lack of joy in him. So that what we see from these poets is that, is that we were meant for joy. We were meant for joy. And even in the face of loss, when we carry that loss forward, sometimes something will happen that for a moment will take us out. We'll turn to a person to share it because that's so instinctive. And then suddenly be surprised because the person's not there. Okay? So it's surprised by joy. Remember, Wordsworth and Dorothy, his sister, used to take all these walks in the, in the hill district in, uh, in England, known for the beauty of the, the countryside, and they loved it together. <coughs> Surprised by joy. Surprised by joy, impatient as the wind, I turn to share the transport. Oh, with whom but thee, long buried in the silent tomb, that spot with no vicissitude can find? Love. Faithful love recalled thee to my mind, but how can I forget thee? Through what power, even for the least a vision of an hour, have I been so beguiled as to be blind to my most grievous loss? That thought's return was the worst pang that sorrow ever bore, save one, one only, when I stood forlorn, knowing my heart's best treasure was no more, that neither present time nor years unborn to my sight that heavenly face restore. I'm reading this, one of the reasons I want to go to the intimations ode because this is one of the serious problems that Wordsworth carried with him throughout his life as a poet. Um, the importance of memory and holding on to those experiences that have been dear to us because those memories are so often a source of consolation in hard times. Um, just hold on to that thought because when we come to the intimation codes, we're going to see it more deeply. Composed upon Westminster Bridge. Now, set this next to London. Take this home tonight and put the two together and read them. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. The city now doth like a garment wear the beauty of the morning, silent bare, ships, towers, domes, theaters, and temples lie open under the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendor, valley, rock, or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep. The river glided at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep. 
and all that mighty heart is lying still. Okay. Now the evil and terrors. Just a very, very quick review of last week. You know that several weeks ago I posed this question when we had set out to see after the quarter deck scene when Ahab took command of the ship. I asked, um, in light of what we'd seen at on land and what had just happened at the quarterdeck scene. What's going on in this Christian community that, it, that it's declined into what we can call a moral code, that the people in New England are living by a moral code? Their faith seems dead. Um, most of them are living with hypocrisies. They are hypocritical in the way they live their lives. They're not living their faith. We saw that again and again. Peter Coffin's got Lazarus outside who's dying. He's not taking any care. And in some ways, that's a, that's a variation on the Lazarus story in the Gospel of Luke. Remember when the rich man ignores Lazarus and then Laz he goes to the next life and he's parched from the burning flames and he asks Abraham if he can ask Lazarus to dip his finger in water. Abraham says no. And the rich man dies, his, his, his name dies means rich man, um, asks if his brothers can go, or if somebody can go warn his brothers so that they don't experience the same doom. And Abraham says they are, you know, they, they've had um, the prophets. Um, if they won't listen to them, they won't listen to a man from the dead. So he's left there. Lazarus is ignored. Here's this man who runs a business who is doing nothing to take care of this guy. Um, Father Mapple is um, very truthful in his reading of the Jonah story, I think. But he's also, there's something very vindictive and lacking in mercy in what he says, burn, fire. And there's a, it's a fire and brimstone sort of spirit pushing people to, to live that life. Um, the, the Presbyterian community, by and large, looks down on, on Ishmael and Queequeg when they walk around the town. They make fun of them. Peleg and Bildad um, cheat Ishmael when he signs on. And Mrs. Hussey, remember, she's more concerned about having a clean house and um, saving the expense on her door than she is that Ishmael might be dead. You know, that there might be a person in there dead. And we get those warnings, remember, from Elijah the prophet, who says, have you seen them? Have you seen them? Are you aware of what you're getting into? And there is those reflections that I finally read where, where Ishmael indicates that, um, that he's slightly aware that he's running away from something, covering it up, but he can't quite see yet what it all means. So he sets off, and then we get the quarter quarterdeck scene where Ahab takes over the ship. And the, the question that I put to you all, I hadn't intended on doing it, but it just came and it seems to me an important question to ask. Can a Christian community hold on to its faith without the sacraments? If you're dealing with spiritual evil, is reading the Bible, no matter how spiritually inspired you are, if you're reading the Bible, is it enough that you have a knowledge in your intellect that will help you reach the sanctity 
that God has called us to, and answer evil, because nobody does in this book. And we, we, it took us to some questions, and then it took me to this question of the sacrament. So last week, what I did was, was um, um, take a few minutes off to try to explain the nature of the Eucharist and why it's so important. And um, I hope it was clear then. The, the point that I wanted to make was, if, if you remember, if you look at all the early heresies of the church, every one of them was a misreading, God, a misreading of Christ's nature. Some people said he was only human. Some people said he was the father come down in another mode. But all the heresies denied one thing, which was at the center of our church from his very beginning, that Christ was fully human and divine. He wasn't just inhabiting a body. He didn't come and inhabit a body for a time. He entered into it to become one with its nature and with nature itself. So he brought a divine world into nature and sanctified it and called us to follow him, to take on a sanctity and a holiness with him. Yeah? The Eucharist, understood in that terms, means the Eucharist can't just be seen as a symbolic act, can't be just wafer and wine, which some people believe they take it in, in, um, in, com commemorate, in commemoration of Christ and remembrance of him. They're taking it as an act. So they're engaged in an act that doesn't fully recognize the fact that Christ took on his nature when he said, this is my body, this, this is my blood. Um, and I finally ended with that. I tr tried to make it even clearer with that comparison between con the notion of consubstantiation and transubstantiation. Remember Luther believed that, he believed in the real presence, but he thought that the real presence coexisted in the host. He didn't believe that it was completely transformed. If you think that back and go back to the heresies, you can see the implications of that, right? Christ isn't fully present. So most, a lot of people think Catholics are cannibals. <laughs> Truly, they think Catholics are cannibals because they're eating, they're eating God. Um, so, um, so I wanted to raise that question and it's, it's just one I don't want hanging over the book, but I want to I want to come back to it. But it was certainly really an important one, and, and Melville provided the opportunity because it's very clear from this book that he's aware that Christianity's failing, truly failing in a fundamental way. The, the whole book is a critique of Christianity in a pretty searing sort of way. So that's where we left off. I went through the plot again and. Um, I want to come back to it again tonight, but move it along. Remember, here's the land, and we set out to sea, and I, I remember saying that, that, that um, um, what's the kind sorry, here's the sea. And these are set up chapters. He's, he's doing all he can to prepare us for the end. And one of the things that he's doing, if you remember all the chapters that we've been reading, is he keeps setting all of these various perspectives against each other, scientific, rationalistic, mythic, historical. He, he gives every possible kind of reading of things, of, of actual facts in the world. So he's rooting us in nature. 
but he always does it in a way that shows analogies between things and most of all most of all analogies between nature and what it's doing and our human condition so um, he's recovering a sense of our place in nature at a time when we have lost it. The sciences are taking it away. Um, the Protestant worldview has, has done some things to take it away because nature is depraved. It's fallen. So what we get in Ishmael is a, is a, is a, this delight really in setting out all these things and bringing all these perspectives together and doing it in a way that I think encourages us to trust him. So we very often get all these outlandish stories about whales and things. and um, So we can see that there are all these different ways of looking at things. Um, and all of this, remember, was directed to this question, why the men seem so impotent, helpless in the face of evil? Um, in Ahab and what Fadala is doing with him. Um, we didn't talk about the tragic here, but I want to take a minute to do it here, just to remind you of something that's really important because it's it's gonna it's gonna become really important in the last couple of meetings that we have. Remember when we when we did the tragedies, all of the ancient all of the ancient epics are tragic in one sense. They all deal with a noble souled individual. That's the tragic paradigm. I've gone over this. They all deal with a noble souled individual. Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas. Dante represents a decline, a decline from that nobility because according to Christianity we're all created by God. There's a nobility to every human being. In the tragic world, we're, we're dealing with a noble-souled individual who has a fault, some fault. Um, but it's important to always remember that there's something great in him because to whatever extent we take that greatness away, we take away from the tragic fall. We don't feel what we should. Achilles is an extremely noble person. He's the only one who does something who has the courage to do it. And Odysseus the same, Aeneas the same, Dante the same, even though we look at Dante as a sort of ordinary figure. But remember, he, he wants to avoid that, that um, call in the beginning when, um, when Virgil says you have to go down um, into the next life. Dante demurs. And remember his two examples were Aeneas did it, Paul did it. Those were great men. I'm not. And you remember what happens when he crosses, he faints. I mean, he keeps passing out all the time. In some sense, he's the least heroic figure of all the figures we've seen. And in that sense, he's most like all of us. The, the tragic hero is always noble. If we, if we don't acknowledge that, we take away the greatness of what's being lost. God made us in his image. There's something extraordinary. We don't see things that way anymore. We don't have a tragic sense. And one of the things I wanted to point out here is um, one of the major questions, and I'm going to come back to it again and again in the last few weeks, what is it in Ahab's background that led him to these ways of looking at the world the way he does? One of them certainly Calvin. That's just undeniable. One of them's Calvin. Ahab is tormented by this notion of predestination. We'll, we'll even see lines tonight where he is. He'll have that line where he says, it's all predetermined, it's predestined before the world began. When Starbuck tries to talk him out of it when, in the whale chase scenes, remember? 
This notion of predestination and free will, Calvin believed that some men were elected before they were born to be saved and some men were damned. That to me is a horrible, inhuman view of life. I mean, a, a God who would create somebody and kill him? That's not a merciful view of humankind. I think it's one of the reasons Ahab struggled so much because he's living with these beliefs that are in some ways inhuman. I mean, I don't know of another word. Um, the tragic hero always has free will. He makes choices. He has a fault. One of the things we have to come to terms with in Melville's rendering of Ahab is what, how are we to look at him? Did he have free will? What, what is he living out? What did he receive from his past that created these burdens for him? Ahab's not an evil man. He's a noble man. I and mean, he's under Fadala's influence. If you've read the book, you know when he has that, that meeting with Pip. Remember? They, they take hands with each other and Pip says, let's go get the blackness and have him rivet our hands together. Ahab hugs him. And there's that scene when he and um, Starbuck are at the railing and, and um, Ahab, if I remember correctly, he drops a tear. And Starbuck sees him and he's overwhelmed with sympathy. The two of them look at each other and commiserate. You can't do that if you're evil. It's a very, very human scene. But shortly after that, Ahab's going to get caught up in the end of his quest and he's gone. So it's important to remember um, that, that, a that Melville is dealing with something very noble in American, in America, and something very tragic. Something very tragic. Something I'm saying is in us, that it's important for us to look at. Um, it's a thought that jumped at me, I can't find it. Um, Oh, oh, here. I think one of the reasons this has become so important for me recently, and I think I told you that I had this fundamentalist friend who's just a dear, dear friend, um, who has these very dark views on Islam. Uh, if any of you were at that Islam talk that Jared and I gave, you know that I opened with this passage from John where he says, he doesn't believe in Christ as the Antichrist. Islam believes that he's a prophet. That was a pretty stark opening, but um, if you were there at the close, you know that I was, I also tried to answer that too, but um, it strikes me when I look at our world today, and by the way, Marcy asked me to say something a couple of weeks ago and I didn't, so I'm going to throw this in here now. Um, it's, it's, it's something that's, that I've really struggled with a lot in my thinking about it because Islam is on the march again. And if you go back historically and watch it, it's, there have been periods, I mean, it, it, it managed to get control of almost the whole Roman world at a time because it was so, so given to conquest, military conquest. Um, and that, that effort to conquer r was revived again in the 18th, 19th century. And you know that it was pushing out again and, and, and putting Europe at risk again, Christianity at risk. This friend of mine believes that the Muslims are the Antichrist, so that they are inherently evil. I myself don't believe that, not for a minute, not for a minute. But it raises this 
interesting problem. I mean, just stop and think about this for a minute because this goes so directly to Ahab for me. If you've been raised Islamic, if you've been raised that way, how can you believe anything else in the world? If you've grown up a fundamentalist in America, not Catholic, if you've grown up in a fundamentalist, that's the way you're going to believe. I don't even want to try to account for conversions right now. I don't want to go there. All I'm saying is that when you grow up believing those things and you've been formed that way, that's the way you move in the world. You don't have any other way. And the evidence that people use will, will very often support their belief. They'll point to Christians and say, see this? In fact, I heard something from a Catholic last week that, that was shocking to hear. I mean, he grew up in a Catholic community in which, um, because he wasn't Catholic, people accused him of being a bastard, that his mother and father were not married, they were in adultery. And, I mean, you, you can hear Catholic people getting very self-righteous about their faith and indirectly persecuting somebody. They're Catholics. People of religious faiths get out of hand. A religious faith can be pretty intense. And, and as a matter of fact, put it, put it this way, the, the secular world that we live in, the, the secular ideology, is partly an effort to answer religious extremism. It, what, what it wants to do is create a society in which all people can get along. It, it's given to tolerance and acceptance and security and comfort and no wars, equality, because it believes that if we're all equal and you do away with classes, there won't be any more sin in the world. It's a utopian vision of our nature. So growing up with religious beliefs carries with it a dark side. Um, and it's important to remember God knows this. <laughs> we're his children. Um, we believe that our faith is true. I certainly do. I'm not going to convert. And I will quarrel with somebody in Islam. And I will quarrel with a Protestant. Um, the thing that I said to Marcy a couple of weeks ago when we, were, when we were leaving is that one of the great hopes that I have in America today, because just in religious terms, there's so much, there's so much that's not good to look at. The world is becoming, America is becoming increasingly secularized. And it's interesting to me to see that as it does, it's not becoming more tolerant, it's becoming more bigoted. Um, but one of, the, one of the reassuring things for me is that, that there's this common ground that Catholics have with fundamentalists that neither one of us have with the broad Protestant church because the broad Protestant church has become so secularized. It's the fundamentalists and the Catholic that share ground on most doctrinal issues. The, the question of the Pope and the, and the sacraments divides us. Those are, those are not small issues, they're major. But at least politically, in terms of our response to the secularizing tendencies in our world, we share a common ground. We support the same things. It's, it's important to remember that. But this question of belief, don't forget Ahab grew up in this culture. He's, he's a product of it. He's working this stuff out. And however sinister the thinking is, there's something noble in him, aware that something's wrong in the way things are. And he wants to answer it even if it's misconceived. Hamlet was a tragic hero. Othello was a tra tragic hero. You know, we've not read Lear or Macbeth or Anthony and Cleopatra or others, I mean, we could do this, but... So it's important always to remember that there can be no tragedy unless there's something noble in that figure. And it's important for us to try to identify those qualities in Ahab that are noble. What's he doing? 
besides wanting to answer this wrong that was done to him. Because he's not dealing with a simple question, somebody just cut my leg. He's dealing with metaphysical issues. And there's something distorted about all those metaphysical issues. He wants to get to the back of things. Okay? Now, hold on to that and remember, every one of the gams that takes place, every single gam has Moby Dick at the center. And in one sense, Ahab's preoccupation with that mystery, Moby Dick at the heart of this circle, brings all of those other gams into focus. There's something missing in all of them. I mean, if you look at The Bachelor, if you've read that far, you know The Bachelors had a killing. I mean, they, they are rich with oil. There's oil filling up every container in the, in the boat. They're happy. They don't care about Moby Dick. They've never heard of him. They don't want to. They couldn't be less interested in this mystery. So one of the questions we have to ask is, how many businesses are like that? When you're successful, who cares about God? Is there something they're missing as human beings in the way that they stand in nature? Take a look at every one of those gams, because every one of them throws a light on the mystery and, and in, in an inverse way, throws light on themselves. What are they not, what is it they're lacking in the, the way they stand in reality? Okay. I'm saying all this right now because we're approaching our end. We're getting closer to the end, okay? Um, so let me go to some of the things that I want to do tonight. Um, in this, what I call this setup section, that group of 20, roughly 20 chapters or so, it's not, it's, it's not neatly divided down into sections. We saw Ishmael again and again making us aware of all the various ways people have of representing whales. But if you're reading, I think, deeply, we have to see he's not just talking about whales, it's the way people represent anything, because the way they represent whales, they will represent other things. And it was really clear, some people don't represent whales whale, whales well. They, they're erroneous in their ways of doing them, they exaggerate things, they minimize things. I mean, people don't see very well, and it affects the way they look at other things. Um, I'll just call to mind one of them now. If you remember the chapter, um, the Jonas story, um, regarded, historically regarded. Remember that um, Ishmael described all these different people who had these various readings of the Jonah story. Some of them laughed it off <laughs> for these ridiculous reasons. Remember there was this one guy, the old sailor, who said, what a ridiculous story. Uh, of course he didn't eat the, the whale because the whale spout holes are too small for a human to get through. If a human being um, were to get through, he'd be suffocated or he would, have, he would have been dissolved by the gastric juices of the whale. So you, you see reason at work denying a, a biblical story. And it, it should raise a question for us as Catholics or any Christian, because if you believe the Jonah story, how do you defend it? Because on the surface, it's so absurd. A guy swallowed a whale, and he, or a whale swallowed a guy, and he survived. And he went off to tell Nineveh this story. Melville took one of the most absurd stories in the whole of the Bible and used it as the paradigm, the structure of his book, because Ishmael's a Jonah figure. He parallels the Jonah story. 
So if, if you use reason to, to, in the way that some people do, then all you can do is say, the Bible's ridiculous. Are you, if that's the basis on which you believe it, then you should throw it away because it's unbelievable. Remember, Ishmael, through the whole, that whole series of chapters, is constantly telling us stories that seem unbelievable or in the world of the fabulous. I use that word, the fabulous. And at the very end, a priest tries to save it by explaining it in terms of miracles. He said, of course, it's all a miracle, which is ridiculous, too, because that takes it away. How are we to read? Bob, one, one question. I mean, Jonah, I mean, the, the description that you, you hear both here is a it's, he was swallowed by a whale, yet there are these readings that basically say he was a fish. And the difference to me is, clearly, a fish is not a mammal. A whale is a mammal. I mean, it is, you know, it is our species. Mm -hmm. or, I mean, not species, but the order of, yeah. of, hum of humankind. And I mean, I, I don't, I mean, when what you're saying basically, I mean, you know, sort of challenges my thoughts here with regard to explanations that one might pursue to try to understand this because of the differences in, in whether it's really a fish or is it worse than a mammal. How does that change it if it were one of the Well, others? because a mammal has a... Has Can you do this briefly? Huh? Can you do this briefly? Yes, right. A mammal, a mammal has a, 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 a nurturing function or capability. Mm -hmm. Okay, I don't know that fish... Fish don't seem to ever have that, okay? But <laughs> mammals do. I mean, whether you're how would that bat. affect the story? Huh? Well, I don't if know. The, I'm, the, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just thinking that there is, there, there is some element. I don't know. I, I can say, I, you know, it, but it was something that's been puzzling me when by reading this particular thing and references to, to Jonah and I can yeah. say and the confusion with regard to whether it's a fish or a whale. Uh, I can't answer that because I'm not sure the difference. Okay. One of the, well, one well, of the things I think I, we're meant to keep in our minds. I'm okay. Not, I'm, All right. No, I, I the fact that you raised this, I mean, it's yeah. just causing me to just repeat yeah. something it, I was thinking it, about. It's really, wait, let me, let me preface this. Nobody reads the Bible today without looking at the opening of Genesis as mythic. Adam and Eve in the garden. You, we don't have historical evidence of that. And you know, for two centuries now, we've been living by materialistic assumptions. Those are what govern our ways of thinking. We're a materialistic people, empirical. The empirical sciences have bred that in. So if you look at the Bible in terms of the presumptions that we bring to it, you have to say, ridiculous, are you kidding? There's no evidence for that. God came into a bike or a garden and she ate an apple and then she tricked her husband and her, or Satan tricked her. And the same with the Jonah story. They belong to a, they belong to a form of storytelling that doesn't quite fit in with these rational scientific categories of thought. So they present these problems. And one of the one of the things I think Ishmael's doing in that and Melville is doing in that chapter is presenting these different ways and and being amused by them because one guy is trying to use reason to show how ridiculous it is, and then the priest tries to save it by doing something equally ridiculous. The question is, how do you read them and what do we make of things like that? And, and more to the point here, it's really important for us because we're going to find something at the end that in some ways is equally unbelievable. Ishmael's going to survive this catastrophe. Why? And on and Queequeg's coffin? I mean, all sorts of things are going to happen at the end. If you were rational, all you'd do is say, are you kidding me? And he'd blow it off. Because Ishmael has been showing us in all these chapters that most of the people blow these things off all the time anyway. Um, that's, I mean, that's why it seems to me he's partly enjoyable, because he's, 
he's, he's being faithful in his renderings of things, but he's also parodying the silly ways in which we read things and what we do with our life. That we don't, we don't stand in the world in wonder with a reason that goes beyond our empirical mindsets. Um, so here, t- t- this week, because I want to get to the readings, I want to get us back in the book. Um, where, where did Ahab get his beliefs? What is he working out? I mean, I would really like to identify them. The next couple of weeks, I want to pin these down because we're going. If you know, if you if you've been along in your reading, you know that in the section that we we're in tonight, we don't see much of Ahab. Ishmael is describing a lot. But in the reading for tonight, we do. We get all these scenes in which Ahab is involved in things, and we see different sides of him. Some that are really unlikable. It's the same Ahab on his quest, and some of them that are deeply touching. Um, where did he get these beliefs? If if this is Plato's cave, if he grew up in a certain way, then then he's a product of this culture. And like every tragic hero, a certain way of forming a character reaches its apex and gives way to something else. I don't know if that's clear. Every tragic hero, Achilles did it for the Greek world, Odysseus, Aeneas for the Roman world. That every tragic hero, Shakespeare did this again and again, brings to the surface some way in which a culture lives out its beliefs there's some error. It's, it always has to do with him as an individual, but he carries something more within him, something of his world, something of the cave, if I can put it that way. Um, what is Ahab bearing within him? If you put him next to some of the captains that he meets, I mean, they all look silly and ridiculous. We can say that Ahab's too noble, I mean, for sure, if there's a sin, um, but it's precisely because he's taking these things so seriously, and they don't. They don't care about this stuff. Um, remember, um, Stubbs' eleventh commandment is "Think not." You know, he's an image of something we find in most of the other captains. They they don't want to be bothered with this stuff. Thinking it, as you all know, <laughs> the more you think, the more conscious you become. The more painful life can be because you're so much more aware of the. Ahab's like that. I mean, he, he, he carries the darkness with him everywhere. He's so aware of woe. So where did he get these beliefs? Where did they come from? What is he dealing with? Increasingly in this period, we become aware of prophecies and signs. We've been seeing signs all along. Can anybody name them? signs, omens, that we've been seeing from the beginning? Elijah pointed them out. He said, did you see the shadows? You know, be on the alert. Anybody... The name of the inn, the coffin inn, wasn't uh-huh. the, co- the name of the inn? Oh, the coffin inn, yeah, right. All of those signs, the coffin inn, Mrs. Um, Hussey's tripods um, sign, there were all those signs at the beginning, yeah, good. You know, the fish swam away in the first gam. Um, what, there's, there's some others and I can't even think of some. Um, the hawk taking Ahab's hat towards the end. There are lots of things that happen that the men, because they seem to be superstitious, take as signs. And it raises this question, how are we reading? Are these people just being silly and superstitious? Is there something to them? 
The reason it's crucial now is because we learn in the section that Ahab was told by Fadala that, um, that Ahab would not die unless he preceded him, um, unless, um, unless he died by hemp, and unless he saw two hearses. He's at sea. He says, there's no way I'm going to see any hearses at sea. And if I'm going to die by hemp, it means I'm going to die by hanging. And for sure I'm at sea, and I'm not going to die by hanging. And I don't see any way Fadal is going to go before me. So at, at, in accordance with the way that he reads, God, this reading to me is such a... According to the way he reads, he's safe. In fact, he even says, I'm immortal. He believes he's free from any possibility of dying based on the way he reads. And you know that this is fundamental because his whole quest is based on reading. This whale bit me. It was malicious. There's a malice acting in him. I want to get back. I want to answer whatever, whatever this evil is in nature. I want to get to the bottom of it. So every one of these is about the intellect, the mind, having an answer and being convinced that his answer is the right one. So this whole notion of prophecy becomes more important, more and more important as we go along. As we move through this section, we come to a point where every one of the navigational instruments of the Pequod is lost. It comes to a point where um, he has to throw the, the quadrant away, he breaks the, or the, the, comp the compass is broken, and the um, log and line um, are lost. So every means of navigating the boat is lost. So during that period, we become aware that increasingly Ahab has become estranged from nature. He has no way of negotiating it, navigating it, except through his own will. It's like Nietzsche's will to power. And you know if you're that far along, you know that there's nothing that he does that doesn't take control of the ship. He has to control everything. Even at the end, he, he starts going up into the mast himself to search. He will not let go of anything. He will not let go of anything. He has to control, have control over everything. So increasingly, we watch a man become more and more estranged from nature. And in some ways, aware that he's doing it against something in himself. He cries, he weeps. He has that tearful moment with Pip. He has that tearful moment with Starbuck. It's like something dark in him is so strong, he can't get a hold of it. If anybody has struggled with sin, I'm assuming you all have. I'm assuming you all know this struggle. Um, just when you think you get a hold of your sins, a week later you find yourself flat on your face again, or however you want to describe it. But um, we've talked about the gams. Okay, I want to. I want to look at specific passages now so we can get back inside the book. But, but let me stop. Any more questions? The bot yes, had a what question. What number three say? Increasing estrangement from nature. Estrangement, okay. Sorry for my writing, Marcy. It's getting worse and worse. And it's really interesting. When you read Go Down Moses, when you get to the bear, Ike is going to be facing a similar thing with technological instruments. Um, now I'm not going to tell you what happens. You have to read to see because Wagner clearly has Melville on his mind when he's writing that and, and he's in some ways answering him, I think. Okay, let's go through the book.
Any questions about all of this? Any of this that I've just gone over? What I'd like to do to try to get us back in the book, um, because we we took up all this um, catechetical stuff, is I'd like to get us back into the text because we're reaching the end and the end is, it seems to be pretty intense and we've got lots of questions to, to deal with, including why Melville called his hero Ishmael. Um, lots of questions here to deal with at the end. Um, in chapter 91, the Pequod meets the rosebud. Here's the, if you look at the, I, we're not going to do this right now because I'm going to, I'm going to do the gams next week. But if you, if you got this sheet, you know, I, I put the gams and I put it with Plato's cave and the honor circle and the Iliad, mm -hmm. just to show you, so you have in front of you all the gams. Because next week, what I'd like to do is look at every one of them in relation to that mystery. But at this point, you know, here we are in the rosebud. We've had the, the, the Goni Gam, the Town Ho, the Jeroboam, and the Young Frau, and now the Rosebud Gam. If you remember, it opens with the um, crew becoming aware of this foul smell. But when a whale dies, it lets off this stench. Mm -hmm. And they know there's a dead whale around, and they encounter the rosebud. And the crew tell um, Ishmael and his men that the, they tried to convince the captain to let go of the ship, that it's of no good to them, but he won't listen. And they get wind of, they know something that um, the Rosebud captain and crew don't, so they convince them to cut loose of the whales, and after the Rosebud is, is departed, they take advantage of the one whale and go inside of it, and it's there that they get this ambergris, this, um, this special anointment. Um, and um, they, they take pride in it because they diddled, they diddled him, they tricked him, what we've got in the rosebud is a very innocent crew. Think about it. They, 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 they're in ignorance about these things. They have no catch. Well, they've got this catch, but they've got dead whales. But one of the reasons I just want to look at this, um, at this section is because it's in this section um, on page 478 when Ishmael's talking about the ambergris. He says towards the top of 478, now that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found at the heart of such decay, is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul in Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor but raised in glory, and likewise call to mind that saying of Periclesis about what is that that maketh the best musk. Also forget not the strange fact of all things of ill savour, cologne water in its um, rudimental manufacturing stages is the worst. 
that that out of this out of this corruption, this dead whale comes this extraordinarily beautiful and aromatic ointment. Um, so and here's Ishmael once again drawing analogies between what's going on in this whale and a larger universal principle that exists everywhere in life. Um, but the reason I wanted to, well wait, we're going to wait on the, yeah. In chapter 93, one of Stubbs' um, boatmen can't go out and Pip is asked to take his place. And if you remember, Pimp becomes frightened when the, when the whale boat gets bumped and he jumps into the sea on page 482. Top of 482, damn him cut, roared Stubb, and so the whale was lost and Pip was saved. So as soon as he recovered himself, poor little Negro was assailed by yells and execrations from the crew, tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate Stubb then, in a plain, business-like, but still half-humorous manner, cursed Pip officially. And that done unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except, but all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat, as your true motto in whaling. But cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as a perceiving at last, that if you should give undiluted, conscientious advice to Pip, he should be heaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future. Stubb suddenly dropped all advice and concluded, I mean, how do you give advice because general advice is always good, but in the particular instance, how do you know what to do? Because sometimes it's right to live it then. This whole question of applying a rule, to a principle to a concrete circumstances is the, the major problem of our life. So pump or sorry, Stubb aware of that says, stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up if you jump. Mind that, we can't afford to lose whales by the likes of you. A whale would sell for 30 times what you would sell. This is close to Shylock's. What's the worth of a, of a pound of flesh? This tendency in a commercial republic to see human worth in terms of its market value, how much, how much it's worth, how much you can sell it for. This has been the problem since the Iliad, it is still the problem here. That, and, and one of the questions I think we have to ask is when he says the likes of you, is it because he's small, because he's black? I mean, is there, is there implicitly a prejudice here? I, I think there is, I mean, but I mean, they, they laugh it off, but now, they go out again, and the same thing happens. And this time, they leave Pip behind. Because Stubb is going to be true to his word. He's, he's, he's not going to sacrifice the worth of a whale for this little creature. So they take off in pursuit of the whale. Bottom of 483. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip, suddenly spying whales close on them on one side, turned and gave chase. And Stubb's boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him, but from that hour, the little Negro went about the deck an idiot, such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though, 
rather carried down alive to wondrous depths where strange shapes of the unwarped primal world guided to and fro before his passive eyes. What extraordinary line. Where strange shapes of, of the unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes. And the miser merman wisdom revealed his hoarded heaps and among the joyous, heartless, ever juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous God omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense, and wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. Anybody want to take a stab? Characterize Pip here. What does he come to that the other... Remember, remember, we've been seeing that in the last 20 chapters, Melville has been using reason. I've said this a number of times, but I think it's so important. Melville has been using reason um, to articulate articulate, um, intangible things. He goes into all these great areas and he uses reason to give us an image where reason usually doesn't go. So he'll enter into a mystery and make some sense of it according to reason. And he'll use reason to, to dismiss reason where reason is too reductive, where it's not doing justice to things. Here he gives this image of Pip almost drowning and having this extraordinary vision and the crewmates look at him and think now that he's mad because he's seen that. And yet Ishmael's line is, so man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought, which to reason is absurd and frantic. When we come to the end of this book, is reason going to tell us, absurd, are you kidding? It's a whale story. Or will reason open on mysteries and reveal something there? How do we look at Pip? Anybody want to? Let me ask this differently. Very often in novels, if if you read enough Charles Dickens or Dostoevsky, you see that the major writers like that, particularly Dickens, Dickens has got this very respect, very Protestant, very respectable sense of the the respectability of a character. He'll live a respectable life. Dostoevsky does this everywhere. And he'll have a counterpart, an anti-type, who's just like him, that, that parallels his actions in some way. Because it's, it's their way of trying to reveal something about a very respectable character that you couldn't reveal in that character without destroying his respectability. And you can't do that in the 19th century. Not in a Protestant world. Is that clear? I hope it is, because it's, if you watch those novels, it's really profound. It's called doubling. Shakespeare does it sometimes, but not like this. And it's, it's, it's more prevalent in the 19th century because you're in a world of respectability. Remember, if, you, if, if your Christian faith is, is evidenced by your respectability, lose that and you've lost everything. Your respectability is your sign that you're saved. So in, in those novels, you'll have antitypes, countertypes. It's a double. And we're meant to see that in some ways that's like an image of something in the respectable person that you can't show 
without destroying them. Because you cannot, you cannot expose evil. Because evil in the, in the Protestant world is a sign that you're among the damned. So does Pip reveal anything? My question here, sorry that was long. My question here is, does Pip reveal anything to us of Ishmael or Ahab? Either one. No. This, this may, Go. This, this may be someone else could do it. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jane. She wants you to go. You can go first. I think, in, in some sense, the fact that Pip was partially on the first of death and then was suddenly rescued, and you, and you see it in in in, in our our life as well. Sometimes when you get that close to the end, suddenly the reason that constrains one is lost. And you begin to see the world in a different way. I mean, and you hear people talking about, you know, we're, we're, we're all bound by the same energy, basically. And they begin to see things that other people can't see. But to those on the outside looking in, you think they've lost, lost it. all reason. Right. And in some cases they have. And so you compare that to the, the two main characters. Um, to Ahab, he seems so constrained by reason that he can't see anything else. And yet every once in a while, and like in the exchange between him and Starbuck toward the end of the book, he begins to realize that there's a fault in that, but he still can't get beyond it. And in some ways, he's almost—he's—he's he, he's almost taken all those issues he has with that struggle and thrown it at the wheel. Mm -hmm. And and because he can't deal with it any other way, he focuses on the wheel, mm -hmm. and it's all he—all he can think about is the conquering of the wheel. In a sense, that's going to be—if he's successful, it will solve this he problem he can't otherwise yeah. deal with. Yeah. Whereas on Ishmael's side. He's beginning to see clarity toward the end of the book that he didn't have before by virtue of seeing all of these things that he's experienced, a lot of them that he's taking to, taking us through, mm -hmm. agnosium. But it's his... What? <laughs> speak, wait, speak for yourself on this one. But he's, 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 beginning, he's, he's beginning... I don't hear you anymore. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> Speak into me. <laughs> <laughs> so to me, that's that's kind of the, the contrast. There is Ismail's beginning to 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 move in the direction that has suddenly found himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's Ahab, some. Ahab can't seem to. Yeah. Get there. There's something of the ultimate nature of reality in this vision. God with his foot on the treadle of the loom, and you know the creative things going on. That he has this vision to the depths of things, and it's interesting too because. There's nothing starkly evil about it. There's nothing malicious. It's fairly benevolent as we look at it. It's a, a well. There is a there is an element though of in Pip's situation. I mean, he is in a case where if you're drifting out at sea and you have and they've gone and they're out of sight, there is an abandonment. There's an this abandonment infinite. And, and then you know you're abandoned. 
the, the difference with, with, with Ishmael and, and Ahab is the fact that they seem like they can control what is really occurring. Pip can't do anything. Yeah. He can't, you know, he can't yeah. swim fast enough to get to the boat. He can't. Right. He's perhaps being being right. carried away with, right. with by currents and right. the like. Right. I mean, the reality right. of I think there's a uh, an intensity here though yeah. that is really extremely different. Right. In, uh, yeah. In, in these Unless two. he's been told he's not worth anything. Well, you know, and, I, and I've been a part of it. I mean, I, twice in my life, I mean, I've been told you know we were going to go down on an airplane and once on a, once on a ship. I mean. You know, when the captain comes in and says, "Get your people in life jackets," I don't think we're going to make it. I mean, there, it mm -hmm. it has a profound yes, effect on you, yes, really. Does. Yes, yeah. Lord, go ahead. You uh, the comment on Pip is the sentence before you is the sentence in the paragraph before you started reading. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And read it. Is almost invariably in the fish um, in the fishery a coward, so called, is marked with the same ruthless destination peculiar to military navies and armies. So I think from him jumping from the ship and being told that this whale's worth more than you, it's the cowardice that has consumed him. All the men- Say it again, it's what? The cowardice that has consumed him. All the men went to the boats and went after the whale, and he's kind of stuck on the ship in his own cowardice, and has maybe had this near-death experience, and the realities have just torn his mind apart. And something that you said about Ishmael that struck me is Ishmael's almost Dante. He is watching and giving examples from almost a third-party point of view of all of this different madness, and cataloging them and writing them and reading about them, and he's able not to ad nauseum either. <laughs> a lot of times, it, uh, 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 facetiously, uh, uh, entertainingly, <laughs> joyfully, full of wonder. The, thing, uh, the things the modern mind doesn't have anymore. <laughs> But he's looking at all of these different things, and he is coming, he has that sense of reason from almost a, a third party seeing all of this and drawing his conclusions. And, and, and the point on Ahab that I was struck in this and, and is that, you know, man was created by God, nature is inherently almost evil, and it's used to be controlled by man. And here is this guy who's driven because nature has wronged him in a grievous way, and he's basically pissed. And it has absolutely consumed him to co kill this evil thing that wronged him. So it's almost, you know, um, man over nature, um, and, and the divinity given man, and not over nature, and that control. I think that's part about the Protestant belief. But relate that to Pip directly, if Mark here. I'm not sure what the connection you're making with Pip here with Ahab. It's that Pip is now, since he's not with the men going after that and fighting that good fight, he's left behind, almost as if cast away, as if this whole, I think you brought it up in the Calvinist, you know, predestined, he is now cast away from the grace of God. He is, so he's left in his own madness. Yeah. What's yeah. that line of, I want Jane Jane. He's been saved though. In no. one way, he's been saved, but he's been he's saved been in saved. a mortal way, but yeah. not in a uh, godly way, not in a spiritual, spiritual way. Jane, you had something. What was it? Well, I, of course, I finished the book, so <laughs> I've got this whole Ad thing nauseum. figured out. But I see, I see Pip, see all the, all the people on the ship, except Ishmael, are, you know, they have done bad things in their life. They're, they're, they, they're the people that. Um, are not going to reach heaven, if we might say. And 
the whole thing is trying to get these people to come back, to come back to God. And I think Pip is one that is put there to help, to remind them that he's young, he goes under the sea, he sees, he sees the world of God. He's put there to remind them they need to come back. They yeah. need to come back. They, they won't, they don't, they, they're not privy to that vision, but we are. And when we talked about this over with, with the But in him, they see that. And then, of course, he gets and mad. And they call it madness. He gets mad, but then that is also a symbol of of the, of the captain's madness. Don't go with the captain. Don't let him lead you down to the ultimate bad end. Yeah, I th it's a good contrast to the Ahab um, view of the inherent evil of things. Ahab feels that way pretty strongly. The vision Pip gives us is of something almost like blessedness. It's a, it's That's a, right. Something good. Yeah, yeah. Let's go on. In the next chapter, remember um, that they had they had built this other the rosebud, and and remember the title rosebud. It's like it hasn't fully developed. When when we look at the gams, this is the rosebud. It's innocent and inexperienced, and but here in this in this chapter. It's an important chapter because it represents one of the most explicit peripatias, reversals. Remember the peripatia that since, I think it's the 11th chapter when Ahab is in, I think it's my, my the, a bosom friend. Remember when he and Ishmael are, I mean, Quico are together and he says, my splintered heart had softened. That was the first turn, explicit. And I suggested in the last couple of weeks that we've been watching Ishmael turn gradually all along because he's becoming aware of wonders to things that nobody else is. Here, the men are called to take this, the gobules from the innards of the whale and they have to squish it into a liquid um, and it produces apparently this, this very aromatic perfume. The bottom of 485, he says, as I bathe my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues woven almost within the hour as they richly broke to my fingers and discharged all their opulence like fully ripe grapes. They're one I hope everybody's appreciating not <laughs> but, should I just leave now? <laughs> no we can be, we can we can be enemies for the duration. Um, I hope everybody's appreciating the poetry of this man. I mean, he's an extraordinary, and, and by the way, his use of poetic devices like automatopoeia, where the sounds of words will often give you a sense of the activity going on, how, how, how wonderfully Melville does that. Like fully red grapes, their, um, their wine. As I snuffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath. This is the first time that he said this since the quarterdeck, the, or the, the, the Moby Dick's chapter shortly after that. I forgot all about our horrible oath in that inexpressible sperm. I washed my hands and my heart of it. I almost began to credit the old Pericles and superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the heat of anger. 
While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free of all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. All the, I'm going to bring spermaceti next week. <laughs> squeeze, squeeze. For us. For all the morning long, I squeezed that sperm till I almost, almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity. Pips man. And this will be one of the first, in the Triworks episode, which is about to come, Ishmael almost goes mad at that vision of the men that's demonic. This thing about reason, and I was, when, when you all were saying what you did, I was trying to think of that phrase from St. Paul, where he says, um, how do you put it, the, the wisdom of men is the foolishness of God, or? Um, the, the, the other way. Yeah, the wisdom of man is, the foolishness of God is Something like that, yeah. I mean, think what that does to our reason, because we so pride ourselves in what our reason can grasp. And Paul is saying, as one of the fools of God, that it's only when we learn to be foolish and stop trying to be respectable in the world that reason will ever become what it's potentially capable of being. So this borderline between reason and madness that, that, that we've actually been seeing in all the works that we've read, I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for the little globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally as much as to say, oh my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social severities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. <laughs> Sounds very Buddhist right now. <laughs> let, us, let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. How can you not love that? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> oh, God, what to do with you? <laughs> I, I'm going to pray for you all week long. You can only squeeze so much. No, 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 there's that reason. No, there, there's that awful reason again. The whole point is you can keep squeezing forever. <laughs> what here I this is this is a silly question. Could, I've got but I want to take a second. What happened to him? Squeezing could do this? What's going on? Can anybody make sense of this? I I'm afraid to say, can anybody use reason to make sense of this? <laughs> Zone. Zone is it? It's like if you take a three-year-old and give him a pitcher of water and a bunch of dirt. He's going to put it together. He's going to make mud, and he's just going to sit here and do this. But what about that? Does that is my question. Could it happen if it weren't tactile? Why, why is the body? I'm, I'm assuming the body is. And the question I'm asking is why? Well, did you ever do pottery? Well, the question is, did you ever squeeze grapes to make wine? Yeah. Have you ever, and, you, and you get to the point where you, when particularly grapes that have a, a husk, and they are aromatic, and basically you end up with this goop of, of stuff with all this, these husks that you have to now strain out, but the, the, ar the aroma of it is, is almost in, uh, uh, puts you in a, almost in a spiritual, yeah, in a spiritual mood, I mean it really is, it really is intoxicated, you know. It's, uh, 
using his I think the point I want to underscore here is that, that I don't think this could happen without the body, that there's something going on with the physical contact that helps break through what I'm going to call this angelic fierceness in the head, these ideas, that there's something humbling in our body that we're involved. I mean, I'm so glad for your example, a child in mud to me is so close to it that that a child can get lost in that world and, and what is it about our human nature that takes us away from that? And it's interesting that it's this that takes Ishmael back and says, let's give up this, I forgot all about our horrible oath. There's something so humbling about our body in, in things like this that, um, that help us overcome what I'm going to call this Luciferian quality to our intellects. You know, because we're, well, truly, the, remember, Lucifer, Lucifer's sin was intellectual pride. You know, the, the carnal, even Dante made this clear, the carnal things are not as dangerous to us as intellectual sins, the pride and so. Um, this is the kind of what happened to Pip. Go ahead. Is that whole sensual experience took him so far away he never found his way back? In the depths of it, too, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, you know, Ishmael, in this case, eventually, eventually finds his way back. But in a sense, you know, Pip left and never came back. And, and don't ever forget it. Don't ever forget. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said um, Ishmael was not present there. This is all Ishmael about. So there's, this has got to be in Ishmael in some way. Even though we get it as happening to Pip, when Ishmael wasn't present to him. So this is Ishmael's reading of Pip and what happened, as it is in so many other instances here. We're getting this all through Ishmael. Um, so clearly he carries all this in him in some way. This is an abandonment of reason. Hmm? This whole description is an abandonment of reason. It, it really, it, because it's, it, it's the emotion and the feeling taking over from I'll say the mental reality of things, mm -hmm. and it, it's a it, so so when you look at the reasoning portion of what you've been talking about, I mean this is a complete abandonment of reason. I'm a little bit nervous to go that far, but to, yeah. I, but I but I think I think really there's something to that, Mark. That this whole question about madness and reason that there's a certain kind of reason that is not a good madness, and there's another kind of reason that we would call madness that's close to what I was trying to get at with that he line from Paul. He sort of went into a self-hypnotic state. Hmm? He went into a self-hypnotic state. Who, Pip? Or, no, Ishmael, he was this, yeah. Yeah, he just was so absorbed in it, it was like a self-hypnosis thing. I'd like to call it love. <laughs> <laughs> Turn to page 490. We've got a... We've got a one, one last thought. Yeah, go ahead. Isn't that kind of what the sacraments do? Good, good. What, go ahead. And I can't take credit for that. My wife brought it up. She just you, let, let's hear from you. He's had, he's had his turn tonight. I, I, I'm trying to set her up here. <laughs> go ahead. Well, a sacrament, it's an outward sign of something going on. And so we, every sacrament has some kind of outward sign. Yeah. And this is... I think of this Central being now. Yeah, yes. No, it appeals to our senses of something else going on. Takes us beyond reason. Well, or, or at least quiets the wrong kind of reason. Yes. I want to be, because reason's a part of our nature, and I don't think the nature of the sacraments is to take that away. I think it's to heal it and make it better. 
But here, haven't all of you had an experience where something going on in the mass, particularly in, involved, has brought you to tears without any occasion? I mean, and in, I remember, remember when we did Merchant of Venice and um, people were asking Antonio why he was sad? And Solanio said, whenever I go to a mass and see the altar, and I'm, it bethinks me of the rocks that my ships are up against. And I remember making, when you walk into a church, you're supposed to walk into a place where the present intersects with something timeless. And in that sense, I don't know about losing reason, but certainly somehow it takes you out of this world and heals. So I'm really glad. I mean, that's a really good example. In the sacraments, when you take the sacraments, a joy can well up to a point where you, the only way you can respond is to cry or weep or enjoy because you're so overcome. I don't think that's a loss of reason. I think it's a healing of, it gets us out of the, 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 that kind of reason like Ahab had, so that you've got to get from here to here as if that's what reason was intended to do. And I don't think, I don't, I don't think that's what it, it is. But yeah, I think the sacraments is a good example. Um, can you turn, I'm, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through this quickly because we don't have time. Um, chapter 98, I'm gonna do this, I'm just gonna rush and do a quick review here just to help get you along. In chapter 98, stowing down and clearing up, remember that Ishmael is describing the work of the, of the shipmen on page 499. Oh wait, wait, I'm sorry, I forgot the triworks. I'm sorry, go back, because this is what I wanted to read, but you guys are undoing me again. Page 494, 495, Ishmael is at the helm, the triworks are going, the fat is being burnt, you know that it's the evening, and the, if you've been in an evening and a night and you've been in a bonfire, you know it's strange, it can almost look devilish with the fire going into the sky. You've got these fireworks, these triworks sending up flames. Ishmael's at the helm and he's watching all the men, and particularly the, the, native, the native men, and he has this vision that's hellish. Um, 493, towards the top. To every pitch of the ship there was a pitch of the boiling oil which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces. Opposite the mouth of the works on the further side of the wide wooden hearth was the windlass. This surfer a sea sofa, here lounged the watch when not otherwise employed, looking into the red heat of the fire till their eyes felt scorched in their heads. Their tawny features now all begrimed with smoke and sweat, their matted beards and the contrasting barbarian brilliancy of their teeth, all these were strangely revealed in the capricious emblazonings of their works. As they narrated each um, other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told in words of mirth, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them like the flames from the furnace as to and fro in their front, the harpooners widely gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers as the wind howled on and the sea leaped and the ship groaned. Is there anything more? I mean, that's a, that is a nightmarish, hellish vision, the likes of which we haven't seen except in Dante's Hell. Um, the ship groaned and dived and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea 
and the night. This is a proleptic view. It's a view of the ship rushing to hell. This is the first glimpse we've been given of something actively demonic on the ship. The ship groaned and died, yet steadfastly shot her red hell, hell further and further into the blackness of the sea and the night and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth and viciously spat round her on all sides. Then the rushing Pequod, freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse. It is, right? I mean, it's killing, it's burning a whale. Plunging into that blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul. So this is, this is a, it's a part for whole. It's a, it, I think it's a metonymy. It's, it's a part for a whole. The, what we see here is actually the spiritual character of the ship and that's sort of hidden underneath the surface. Um, just very quickly, um, in chapter 103, um, Ishmael talks about the measurement of the whale and it's one, once again it's one of those facetious um, chapters where he talks about the way people think by measuring the whale they can come to understand it. It's his parody of the modern empiricist assumptions about science and, and shows that it's taking the measurements of a whale is not going to teach you. He said, if you, want to, if you want to learn the whale, you have to go under the ocean in its own environment and somehow participate in its life in order to get to know it. And then he ends up describing the parts of the whale and the spine knobs from the, the largest ones that I, if I remember correctly, are something like four or six feet in diameter down to the very smallest. And he ends the chapter with that description of children using the spines as marbles. And he said, and isn't this what it all comes down to, child's play? It's once again Ishmael laughing at the silly things that we make of what we do. Um, in chapter 106, um, after his visit with uh, Samuel Enderby, Ahab um, splinters his, um, his artificial leg and he wants Perth, the blacksmith, to make him a new one. And it's a humiliating moment again. I wish we had time, but I'm, I'm going to wrap this up quickly. It's a humiliating moment for him because it's another of those instances where he realizes that something of his human dignity is lost because he has to depend on a blacksmith. And if, I really encourage, if you haven't read that, you want to read that chapter and you know, 106, 107, and 108 because every description of the, of the um, carpenter of Perth is exactly the descriptions that you would get from somebody in AI, in artificial intelligence, who look at the human being as the model of a computer and the computer is a model of the human being. That we, the, that we are nothing more than, than what, what we're made up of materially. So yeah, parts that can be replaced. Um, it, it, read, read it truly because you're getting a wonderful example of somebody who, who looks at the human being as something that you can simply construct and where problems arise you can replace those parts so that it can go on. And, and once again it's a humiliating moment for Ahab because He's aware that there's something more to him that can't be fixed by all that the carpenter can do for him. And then in chapter 110, you remember Quico gets sick and he asks that a coffin be made for him. And on that coffin, he inscribes all of his history as it was recorded on his body and his tattoos. And remember, this is the, this is the, um, 
the boy that's going to save Ishmael at the end. And there's, it's interesting, there's, an, there's a confusion about a coffin and a boy, and it's meant to raise this question of how we limit ourselves and what we do with words, because we get too bound by the conventional meanings, and, and the, the, the effect of that is to put us into boxes. When everything that Ishmael is trying to do is get us out, to use language in a way that will help us get past those conventional ways of seeing into other, to use our powers of reason and imagination in a in, in a way motivated by wonder to see that there's more going on and to use language to get to that. We're on the verge of the end and we're going to reach the climax in, in um, our next meeting. So I hope you all will move forward in your readings. Um, thank you all again. Um, have a good week and more importantly, have a good, have a good Lent. Thank you. Thank you. Fred, I, I hope this is a, a week of good penance for you. It's already begun.